Welcome, film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. When you watch a movie, television show, commercial, or even a music video, what do you notice? Is it the performance of the actors? Does the snappy dialogue make you pay attention? Does the music and sound grab you? But do you ever look past all that? Do you ever think about what the actors are surrounded by? Uh, What did it take to recreate the doomed ocean liner in Titanic? Uh, In the 1959 classic Ben-Hur, More than a million pounds of plaster was used to build nearly 300 sets across almost 150 acres and nine sound stages. Uh, Wes Anderson has a very trademark look for his set pieces. Um, Tim Burton also is just beyond imagination. All of those are made possible by art directors and production designers. Uh, Today we are joined by an extremely accomplished artist, but I think he prefers to consider himself more of a craftsman. He's been an art director, a production designer, a prop master, builder, and an armor on more than 1,500 commercials. Yes, I said that right. 1,500 commercials, more than 200 music videos, and has worked on feature films, including Last of the Mohicans and Miami Vice, both directed by Michael Mann, as well as Bad Boys, Into the Blue, Confessions of a Shopaholic, and last year's I, Mordecai, starring Judd Hirsch and Sean Astin, which was filmed down here in South Florida. I am very excited to welcome Jerry Blom to the podcast. Jerry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Jerry, you're obviously a man of many talents. You've held a variety of positions across many different content types. Uh, one thing I did not mention is you're also a United States Air Force veteran. So thank you for your service. Always a pleasure to have a fellow veteran on the show. Uh, But if you could share with our audience, one, what did you do in the Air Force? And then how did you find your way into this industry? Well, you know, I had a lot of fun in the service. I got to uh, play hide and seek on a professional level. And um, we did some rescue. We we taught some pilots things here and there about post-ejection survival. And uh, for the most part, I was a young man, so I was pretty rambunctious. Um, I was happy to have that element in my life, which trained me to get into film life because it is very regimented. And I think it follows the same cadence as military. Um, So I did that at a young, young age. I went into uh, college and um, was given a scholarship to join film uh, as an intern. And I did my three or four months for basically free. Uh, and you work about 12 hour days. Uh, and then I started getting paid, um, a pittance. Uh, I basically moved back in with my parents and, uh, for a while, which was another challenge, but, um, I love the cadence of it. It's fast. It changes rapidly. At this point, I've been doing it more than 38 years. Uh, every week there's a new challenge. It's great. And so it has definitely kept my attention. Yeah, I've said before that after the military, I think a film set is probably the most hierarchical organization that's there. I mean, there is a there is a set chain of command, and you know the regiment. Uh, 
I just watched a, a four-part series on Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Warner Brothers, and they were talking about uh, Busby Berkeley, the famous choreographer. And they talked about he first started learning to choreograph as a lieutenant in World War One when he led marching and drill in there. So it's definitely a, uh, you know, I, I think a longer history than people realize of, of the relationship between military and, and how film sets are organized. Yeah. And, and I said, uh, you worked on more than 1,500 commercials. Can you name all of them? <laughs> I keep really good records. I have my office helps me. I have a website that, that carries a bunch of them. There's probably 800 on there right now from the last 10 years. But if you multiply that times four, it's more like 3,200 commercials. Oh, wow. It just goes on and on. And every week we're adding one this week. We're adding one next week. You know, when you when you have a mechanic that works on your car, you pretty much want them to do it every day. And so this is about the best I'm going to get. I do these every week. And uh, they're national spots. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, America puts out propaganda on a superior level. The world's chasing us. Mm -hmm. And so we're just part of the system. Are there any that really stand out as memorable ones? Yeah, there are a few that are pretty substantial. I did one for Sony where we flooded all of downtown Miami in bubbles. It was something like 2 million cubic feet. We washed all of downtown for about two weeks. And so it was pretty amazing. You can see it. It's called Foam City, okay. and it's on YouTube, and it's it's a pretty amazing piece. Okay. Have you done a Super Bowl commercial? You've done several. That seems to be like the the apex, apex mountain, Once if you've done a Super Bowl commercial. At this point, if a season goes by and I don't do one, uh, I feel like I'm slipping. Oh, wow. Do you remember what some of your favorite ones are? Not really. Yeah. They tend to run together. And if you ask somebody, we process about between 100 and 500 elements a week to get these things going. And every one of them seems to be paramount. So when I'm walking through the set with my pad and pen and the director and, you know, agency is spouting off details, I'm busy writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not talking a lot. I'm just taking a whole bunch of notes. And then at the end of that, they'll come back a week later and ask you for the most minuscule thing that they mentioned in passing quickly. And so if you're not good at note-taking and being able to regurgitate that information and expedite it to somebody and get it done because you can't get it done by yourself, mm-hmm. that's part of the key sets, you know, components that you need to do this job. When you're taking notes, are you processing as you take the notes or do you just want to listen, take notes, and then look at it afterwards to process? Well, I mean, I think that there's, listen, there's some key skill sets that you need to do this job. Mm-hmm. And I have young kids that come up to me all the time and say, hey, man, I can draw. I want to be an art director. Drawing is so far removed from my skill set. It's it's definitely part of it, and it's in my wheelhouse. But in addition to that, there is interpersonal relations. There is asking somebody the right questions for the right information. There is showing people and being transparent of what they can get and managing the expectations from the get-go. So while they're giving me these notes, I'm taking advantage of the first person I talk to in a commercial is the producer. A lot of people talk to the director and want the creative. I only want to paint the creative after I know my budget parameters. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I do is go to the producer and go, hey, how much money do we have? I don't want to go up to the director and get them all revved up on something fantastic and then have to cut them down because we don't have the money. So I start with the money. I'm from the money side. My dad was a sculptor. I have artistry in my veins. Oh, wow. But I'm also one of those guys that are really good with numbers. So while we're painting the picture creatively, I'm thinking about it financially. 
And so a lot, a lot of guys can split those up. And so while I'm taking all these notes, I'm, I'm putting them, I'm compartmentalizing them. But at the same time, I'm saying, can we get this into the spectrum? Are producers, I don't want to say the same, but are producers similar across all mediums, a film producer, a commercial producer, a music video, or do, for example, commercial producers, do they tend to come more from like ad agencies that are running the show? I mean, the producer in a movie is really the guy who's watching the money. And they are the person that usually brings the money to the game. The director is the guy who has a personal relationship with the actors. So if you're talking about any of the big directors, they have relationships with the big actors and they can bring them to the project. That's their whole deal is extracting a great performance from the actor in an environment that's real. So the actor feels that the real environment is what they're really in. If we're doing 1930s, they feel, and it's immersive, mm -hmm. whether it's 180 or 360, again, it's, it's financially driven, but it's important that when the actor opens his wallet or he goes into the paperwork that his fake name, his character name is in that paperwork. He's got a driver's license with his name and picture on it. If he opens the car registration, the car he's driving has his name and paperwork. So that all those little attention to details are super important to the game. See, that speaks to me because I'm a I'm a script breakdown nerd. Like I love breaking down scripts and, you know, identifying all those things like, oh, you know, we need a registration driver's license things with with their name on it comes from a little bit of an IT background and in project management. And that's basically what I would call requirements gathering. You mentioned your father was a sculptor. Growing up, were you handy? Were you always building things, tinkering? My dad was a lot of things. I mean, he was a cabinet maker. Um, my mom did ceramics. So there was a lot that went into it. And when I went to college, I tinted windows. And basically, I've tinted windows all the way through commercial TV. So they need it for cars. They need it for, you know, ND on, on film sets. It's carried me a long way. So a lot of the stuff I've done in my young life has transferred into this career. Um, all the building, all the cabinetry, all that. Now I've done construction coordinating on some pretty big shows. So it's fun. It's nice. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy that. And so I feel like it's all culminated to bring me to where I am today. So I have to ask, because if I don't ask now, you know, I want to bring it up and spend the rest of the show talking about it. You worked on Last of the Mohicans. Uh, you got to work with three legends. You worked with uh, Michael Mann who's my favorite director in film school. That's who I picked for my director's analysis. You were, got to see Daniel Day-Lewis up close, who's one of the greatest living actors. And more within our niche, uh, Dale Dye, who's legendary uh, Hollywood military advisor, Marine Corps veteran, so hurrah to him. Uh, what was it like being able to watch each of them during production and just being able to absorb from them? You know, you're getting trained every step of the way. I was a young man. Um, I really just wanted to do a good job. Uh, it was an arduous project. It was a large project. Um, those movies, they're not dead, but those movies take between six months and a year. And the filming is usually 100 days. Mm -hmm. And there's splits in there, what they call splits. There's hard nights. There's rain. There's all kinds of hardships that, the, that we endure. But to pony up next to those guys... Mm -hmm. Each one of them I got to enjoy and learned a whole lot and carry some of those with me today, those lessons. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis was totally immersive. The The investors definitely get their money out of that guy because he is Hawkeye. He is that 
that guy. And what a pleasure, what a gentleman he is off camera, uh, it, wanting to learn, you know, teaching him how to load his weapon on the run, teaching him how to skin animals correctly to look like he's really knows what he's doing. Just a real pleasure to work with. Did you uh, did you think back to when you were instructing Sear School when you were out in the elements? <laughs> uh, I mean that that training that that being able to speak to others and transfer that information was definitely handy. And so Dale Dye and I came into contact because I was the, the armor in the beginning um, for Black Powder. Me and Dale Dye had an intimate relationship in the beginning of the show. It was I think there was um, three or four months of prep. And in that prep, uh, Dale trained 50 hardcore guys. We trained them for two weeks. No, we trained them for a month in military cadence, black powder, you know, weapons and marching of the time. And I was the armor and he was the military advisor. And so we had many a beer, super pleasant guy, great stories, told me about Hamburger Hill, Thin Red Line, Platoon, how he got in, uh, being a Mustang. Uh, Oliver Stone. I mean, the stories went on and on. Yeah. Um, he tried to recruit me after the movie to do, which was, it was a different shooting uh, title at the time, but Sniper mm -hmm. with Tom Berenger. And we actually, he brought me to dinner and said, hey, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Didn't tell me who it was. And I stepped in and, and he goes, this is Tom. And I turn around and I go, God, that guy looks familiar. And it was Tom Berenger. Mm -hmm. And so it was for a movie called Sniper. Mm -hmm. It was going to be down in um, Australia. And I got hurt on Last of the Mohicans. I hurt my back. Uh, I was carrying a thousand pounds of gear and it was, you know, it was 20 hour days. It was very arduous. So I couldn't do it. I, I was kind of bummed about it, but um, I had to, I had to bow out of that. Yeah. Michael, Michael Mann, on the other hand, um, very thorough man. Everything you put in front of camera had to be researched. Mm -hmm. Everything had to be, you had to show two or three historical documents that this is how it was done and that this would, would really mm -hmm. be the way they carry themselves, they would have. And he was, he was something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you touched on an interesting point, how, you know, you had a relationship with Dale Dye. I think an important part of working in the industry that I don't know how it can be taught at film school or taught is the networking, the relationship building with people that if you're not if you're not able to do that if you're not able to build those relationships it's going to be really hard for you to be successful and get in i think so yeah i think that uh i mean you, you have to have a, a combination of um stamina mm -hmm. intelligence um being able to uh point things out but at the same time, being part of the team. And, and you mentioned being an armorer, uh, both in and out of the film industry, you know, the position of an armorer and weapons has been in the news a lot recently. But uh, Last of the Mohicans, you know, you had muskets, you had flintlock pistols, hatchets, bows and arrows that old weapons, whether they were recreated or actual ones, handheld weapons, the safety protocols must still be the same. And the chain of custody and just how important that must be. It's, uh, it's difficult. I mean, weapons handling is serious business. You know, you need to treat an unloaded weapon just like it's loaded. Um, when you're standing there with the British cadence, you're right next to the guy. His flash pan is almost in the face of the other guy. Mm -hmm. It's very important that you observe all the safety measures and that you do what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Last Mohegans had a huge cast. They were between a thousand and twenty five hundred guys, you know, lots of opportunity. I trained those core guys and those core guys went on to train each one of those 30, 50 guys trained 10 guys and each one of those 10 guys trained two guys. That's how you trained a thousand guys. So you did the first guys for 30 days, the next guys worked on it for two weeks, and then the next guys worked on it a week and you were done. Do you have a stance? I shouldn't say stance. Do you have thoughts or feelings one way or another, you know, given what's happened about when it comes to whether muzzle flash, smoke, things like that, adding it in post for safety reasons or keep it in because you just can't duplicate the realism of, of when it happens? Um, I think the actors play off the noise. I think they play off the muzzle flash. Mm -hmm. I think the muzzle flash is important. I think that if you look back at the accidents that have happened versus the volume that's gone through the gates, that it is minuscule. Um, it's normally negligence. Um, it's very rarely, uh, you know, it it can be a combination of of problems that bring you to a, a bad result. So it's very important that you, uh, that you kind of keep your eye on it. Mm-hmm. The armor usually has the set when he steps on. Mm-hmm. Him and the AD work it out. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be talking to that guy. I don't bring my phone on set. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need your complete undivided attention. Right. right. And speaking of Michael Mann, when I was in the Marine Corps, it was a few years after Heat came out. I was in the Marine Corps when they were showing Val Kilmer and Heat reloaded and saying, if you can't do it that well, as good as him, you fail and to retreat under fire. And again, it just goes to his meticulousness. And uh, the story is he didn't ADR any of the machine gun fire in that scene in the bank robbery. That's the actual sound of the blanks going off because the echoes Absolutely. that were happening. Absolutely. Just just amazing. And you can hear him ricocheting off yeah. the building. Aside from my, you know, the three that we mentioned, do you, did you have any other mentors or... People oh, who influenced you grow, all along the up? way. All along the way. So, I mean, to be clear, I didn't do all of the armoring in Las Mohicans. They brought in a team for the shootings because they had thousands of guys. Mm-hmm. So I went on to just do the interpersonal between me and the actors that were on camera. All the background artists and all those were other other guys, a whole armoring team that did all that. And so they were cleaning a thousand mustics a night and things like that. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, everybody that I work for and work with has something to bring to the table. You know, you always are try to, and then you try to pass it along to the next guys. Has there, has there been one piece of advice or anything that really stands out? But, I, but I've written a list. I went ahead and I, I have a list that, that I, I keep, that I give to the young recruits that tries to get them, assimilate them quicker into the, into the game. And um, it's just a, a collaboration or, you know, notes that I made along the way based on things, and I just keep a running total of it. This is from 2000, so it's already 23 years old, and I've still added stuff. Um, you know, and it, there's always young people that want to get into the game. They think they have what it takes, and then they find out that they may or may not. Yeah, it's it's tough business. And and you mentioned, you know, when you started working for nothing and then, then for pittance, that's still a big ongoing debate. You know, I, I know now where... There are people that say, you know, whether you're a PA or what, you should never work for free. And there's others that hold on to the feeling that, you know, the way the business is, you're going to have to work for free to get your foot in the door. So There's so many people that want to do it. There's so many people that think they want to do it. Out of what I consider to be my graduating class, there's two or three people still in the game. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say, 
maybe 300 people started with me and there's three in the game. So it it goes quick. Tough business. You got to have, as as we say in the military, you know, the intestinal fortitude to push on. It's true. You'll, you'll, you'll find out what you're made of when you do a movie. You need to do a movie that's over 40 days and you'll sit on the bed on day 30 and go, what have I got myself into? And then you got 10 or 20 days and you're out. I mean, I, I worked on a feature for two weeks straight long days and at the end of the two weeks i think i slept for three days afterwards it's just it takes everything out of you but then there's a magical feeling about seeing your work on the screen absolutely we are off and running we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back cinevideotech and paradoxical films are pleased to bring you tell your story master training workshops you will learn how to work with actual 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film and film cameras as well as how to load and change magazines in addition the workshop will teach you what it takes to work on set as a first or second assistant camera the fundamentals of lighting and the pathway to becoming a director of photography Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to sign up. Hurry, as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. And we are back with Jerry Blum. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned art direction, production design as being so integral to a production, whether it's film, a commercial, music video, even a stage play. Can you talk about what art direction and production design mean and really why they are so important to the aesthetic of what's being produced? It is a third of the production. So most productions are the paperwork side, which is the producer, the camera side, which is the DP, And the visual side, which is what they call the PD or the production designer, that person has to put, you have to be able to turn off the TV, see the production and feel that that's real. And that way, when you put the actor in it, he's immersed in the set, whether it's 180 degrees or a 300 degree set, whatever it is, the believability is what you're looking for. So if we're doing 1930s, you put the cars in, you got to put some brownstones in, the people in wardrobe are in. It's a collaborative effort to make the visualization feel real. And it's very important that it carries across the set so that wherever you look, you're representing correctly. I think almost everything except the actors and and vehicles almost fall under the the art department. I know what all the departments are, but what are... All the departments and maybe some of the other ones that people don't realize fall under art direction well, or I production mean, design. The art director and production designer, they talk to wardrobe and make sure that the background colors of the set match the wardrobe, that the wardrobe radiates the feeling of the actor. If it's a moody piece or very dramatic, normally they're in browns and blacks and grays. You'll very rarely find somebody, you know, in a bright yellow jumper and they're talking about, you know, life life stuff. So I think that the production designer talks about all construction. They talk about um, all the the things that the actor touches. They talk about, you know, pretty much everything. I mean, it's it's a pretty immersive deal, but it is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, without the other departments, without hair, makeup, wardrobe, and all the rest of it, effects for smoke. You know, if you have machine gun fire for armoring, mm-hmm. for whatever it is, I came up from the bottom so I've been in most of those departments, and I think they add to my validity to be able to pull off a good, good, real piece. And especially, you know, props and set deck, and you know, the, you know, if they if they sit, lean, or push on it, it's set deck. If they handle it, it's a uh, it's a prop. So 
But when you know a, a piece of a prop becomes setback when they pick it up, types of things and continuity parts of that, all that. It's super neat to do a feature film because you find the delineation immediately. You learn where set dressing starts and where props begin. And that way you really get to know the craft. And so I did a very short time uh, in commercials as a PA. And then I went into set dressing at Universal on some on some projects. And from there, I really started to learn the craft. And I did about eight years of feature length movies. And then I one day woke up and said, you know what? People were talking about doing commercials. And I said, I began in commercials. I can go back to Miami and do commercials. So I came back to Miami and it made me a much better technician to be able to have done that. And so we do in commercials as, as an art department key, you do pretty much everything in front of camera on a movie. Although you're responsible for it, there are other departments doing it. The birds, the dogs, the cars, you know, all the construction, but in commercials, you're in charge of all of that. So it's just a mini movie. In my opinion, it goes much faster the people that work in commercials, I think, can work in movies. The people that work in movies, I used to believe that they were the ones, but they don't work as fast as the people in commercials, most of them. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to leave anybody out, and there are definitely some exceptional people. But movies are a much bigger animal. They have bigger budgets. They can um, really flush out the scenes that they're doing. Commercials are much more – most of the commercials we do have brighter colors they're newer stuff. You very rarely have aged stuff in commercials. And so, uh, but it suits my personality very well. It goes quick. Movies are like uh, turning a ship in the ocean compared to commercials, turning a speedboat in the ocean. How has CGI impacted I mean, I think, it's, I think it's coming. I think AI is coming and I think CGI is, you know, we were all worried when green screen was, was, was in vogue and everybody was, oh, we're going to green screen everything. But we found out pretty quickly that the audience is smarter than that and that you need to be pretty true to the craft. Mm -hmm. And so AI is definitely making it difficult. I mean, with the new, um, what is it uh, that just came out with Harrison Ford? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. So they now have AI, him going back to where he's 40 years old. So the actors are worried about that as well as everybody else. Right. Um, I mean, with, with LED screens now, we've been doing a lot of foreground stuff. I mean, it adds amazing production value to the show mm -hmm. to be able to put an aircraft in the background and, you know, you have a car in the foreground and it looks like the actor is just walking up to the car. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you don't have to pay, you know, parking for all the crew. You don't have to worry about tickets. You don't have to worry about flat tires, not getting the set. You can do 10 sets a day, you know, in LED screen and just put, change out the stuff in the foreground. Do production designers work with, the programmers, the developers who are building those VFX environments, or is there a, a separation? Everything's morphing at all times. You know, when you get into your car, if you listen to the people, your audience, you'll change things within that car to make your, your customer more comfortable. The same with these LED screens. If they're listening to the production people that are making it, they'll make them more inclusive so they come around on the edges. So they're higher. Now they float a screen so you see it in the TV, you see it in the windshield of the car going by. So you have a separate screen. It just has clouds up there. Mm -hmm. So you'll see that. Or you'll see it in the glasses of somebody. Mm -hmm. So they listen. Otherwise, they get left behind. Yeah. And there's some stories coming out, some recent uh, big productions 
in Hollywood. I don't want to mention him. That uh, VFX artist talking about they were rushed. They were basically working seven days a week. It's funny, you know, the VFX artist complained, you know, we were working seven days a week, 20-hour days in an air-conditioned, you know, you know, computer room. Well, welcome to set life. But uh, because it was rushed, a lot of there's been a lot of bad VFX coming out and feel, you know, the de-aging thing is something that's very noticeable. I mean, the thing about, and you bring up a good point, everybody's a critic. Mm -hmm. So the same thing when you mess up continuity on the set, which is part prop guy, part script person. Mm -hmm. So those two collaborate and talk to the director and say, hey, that last take was X, Y, Z. It wasn't in continuity with the scene before it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you make a movie, it's one through a hundred, but then you chop it up and you may start with day one, scene 99, mm -hmm. and day two, scene 26. You need to be able to really watch that continuity. It is really important, but anybody can pick it out. My nine-year-old, watched a TV show the other day and said, hey, that, that drink just changed mm -hmm. in a jump cut. So it's very important that you keep an eye on that. And so the same thing with everything else. You know, everybody's a critic. There's an age-old question. Why are coffee cups always empty on films <laughs> and, and TV? Well, you know, there's all kinds of things for that. But I can tell you that it makes it easier mm -hmm. all the way around. You know, I used to watch Cheers and the prop guy on that was fantastic mm -hmm. because the drinks were always just right, right. And if they were smoking cigarettes, they were just right. Yeah. So that guy was a real pro. It's funny, like with the coffee cup, put, put a little bag of sand in there just to give it some weight for something, especially when the coffee, quote, spills. So obvious there's nothing actually in there. I get asked that a lot by people. The actors are so consumed by their role. Right. And it really is. You, you don't know how hard acting is until you try it. And this thing, this this career field is the same way. You know, like I said about the skill sets, it's really important. And there's always guys that are coming in and want to be bumped to the next level. So I showed you when we were off camera that I have some tests that start the guys at entry level and will give them a $100 a day bump. Now, freelance, to be freelance in this business, you, when you're talking to somebody outside the business, it sounds like you're making a fantastical lot of money in one day's work. They make two, three, four, five hundred dollars a day for 10 or 12 hours. I mean, it's regulated by union. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when somebody says, hey, I make five hundred dollars a day as a as a layman, as a blue collar guy, you're like, how can that be? Well, a lot of these people don't work every day. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that you find a freelance technician that fills 30 days a month. So especially if you're doing short format, we call this high risk, high return mm -hmm. for commercials. On the long format, they call that low risk. And then, of course, it's low return. Right. Now, low return to us, again, is higher than most salaries. They make $2,000, $3,000 a week. Mm -hmm. But you give your life away. You're there for 60 to 80 hours. Mm -hmm. The contracts sometimes read that you don't get double time to after 72 collectively. There's all kinds of different contracts, and they're struck all the time. But the bottom line is you are trading your life to be on set life. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no that I'd rather be. You know, I'm looking back at 38 fast years. My union card says I started in 86. I really started in probably 84, 83, because you need to be doing this a few years to be able to get in to the union. Right. You have to have somebody recommend you. I suggest we take a few tests just so that, and before I send guys for, for union, I say, hey man, take this little test so that when the guy asks you, you can say, hey, I know these these things. There's neat terms in the movie business that, that are probably in some other businesses, but everybody wants to be in. So they all want to know yeah. what a C-47 is, you know, what a sandbag is. Mm -hmm. 
how many how many stages are there in an apple box mm-hmm. it's, it's cool it's cool stuff and uh, speaking of the unions i know in florida uh when you graduate from a film school or a film program you can get you can get into iatsi unit at kind of at a reduced price you're still responsible for the quarterly and all that so that's something i definitely encourage everyone in film school uh when you graduate take advantage of it just uh, gives you a, yeah a professional moniker and and if i'd known that i would have gone through film school <laughs> right. so I and got it goes back to the networking and making connections and the information that comes through there you also talk about the skills that are needed to get in this can you talk a little bit more about that what you look for and I mean, how you train design, people i mean in production design yeah in production design i feel like you need to basically visualize for sure within your head you need to be able to uh relay that articulately and you need to sell your side of the story. Um, at the same time, you need to be able to yield quickly to accommodate their vision. Mm-hmm. Cause you have to understand these people have been working on these projects for years to get them to the point that you're at and being on a team film, there are a whole bunch of people that are on BCD teams that you don't realize that are behind you. Cause you're looking forward, but you need the skill set. I think is, you need to be able to talk to people. You need to be able to budget correctly. You need to be able to do what you say you can do, and you need to deliver. And it's funny, you like the things that a person would think go into that. You know, creativity, drawing, like the art side of it. You're a commercial artist at that point, right. and a lot of real artists, which I'm familiar with, can't make deadlines mm. and are um, very sensitive about their stuff. And you have to be able to. Uh, disconnect from that. Right. Yeah. And so you're just, you're, you're there, you're a hired gun. You're there for the, for the week or the month or the year or whatever it is. And you're there to, to visualize for somebody. We've talked a lot in the past, especially cinematographers, DPs who have, you know, been firsthand the evolution from film to digital. In your almost 40 years, have you gone from a lot from hand-drawn to auto draft using online you know, computers to help that. Can you talk about that a little bit? How, how, how much technology has evolved? We drew a whole lot in the beginning. And I have books and books where you would walk in with your portfolio under your arm and it would uh, sell. It would either make or break. And they would, back in the day, they would call three or four people at the same time. And whoever picked up the phone first was first in line. And if you have to be a salesman, I mean, all of us are salesmen, no matter what we do, the shirt you're wearing, the car you're driving, you know, the smile you're putting on, all that is to get to sway somebody in your direction. So if you know that going in, we're all selling something and you have to be able to articulate that and show that you're capable in order to get this project. And you have to be enamored. You have to be excited about it. And you talk, you know, talking budget especially in this area, a lot of micro-budget, small-budget, independent, you know, no-budget student films going on. And where most of the budget goes a lot of times is just the location itself and other things. And I don't want to say they have to sacrifice or cut corners when it comes to the art design, production design of it, but what are there? I'm sure there's a bunch and we could probably do a whole episode on it, but are there tips and tricks or things that, that you would suggest to somebody that if you have a small, how can you maximize a production design budget? Like what are the things you should focus on? Should, you know, focus on wardrobe, focus on hair and makeup. I mean, like I said, it's so important. You have to be malleable 
And you have to listen really well because you are just part of to bring the vision. So like I said, the person that brings you the job is been working on it for months with their client or with whatever, if it, whether it's a story of a book that you're bringing to life, but the things that are important, you need to be able to know that those are the important things and highlight those. So to really maximize, you need, I put everything on a list. I then put a financial number next to it. And then I add that up because in South Florida, we work more for producers than we do for directors. And I would be out of the game a long time ago if I didn't, I feel like it's a contract between me and the people that are hiring me to make that financial number. But as soon as you tell me what the whole thing is, the want, the ask, the thought, I can tell you with whether we're in the realm. I recently produced a, a short film. It's we're still kind of in production, fixing it, but but we were able to get the first half done. Very talented, young production designer that I worked with. He built a model that we shot and did stuff. He fabricated a uh, a supercomputer that we use. Have you worked? Have you worked with models? Have you built models? Uh, we have done some models. In fact, we just did one. So we have some pretty big equipment at the shop, and we made some models lately that are cool. They, they a real model that's well done takes longer than a full size set. And I mean, they're always, like I said, there's always different projects. I haven't made a model in years, mm -hmm. but getting back to the drawing versus computer. So I used to do a lot of hand drawing. I had a fat portfolio. I probably have 10 books at home mm -hmm. that are, that are 18 by 24 and you open them up and they have all this stuff. And now I do a bunch of stuff on computer. I do it all SketchUp, CAD, Photoshop, Illustrator. Those are the main ones. And we, I normally manipulate, I go take pictures of the location and then I manipulate it and send it back with the original so they know how far it's come and see if that's something that they want to do. And another thing that struck me, uh, educating the next generation of craftsmen, artists, so much of it happens outside the classroom. You seem to take a lot of pride, it sounds like, in mentoring and teaching uh, up and coming ones, the ones who have it, the ones that are willing to put in work, how important is that to you? I wouldn't say it's a game, but it's a challenge to meet the new crop of PAs every year that are between 10 and 20 fresh faces, and then try to see which one you think is going to make it. In years gone by, I I'm maybe like one for six, mm -hmm. you know, because wow. I'll pick out of the top 20, I'll pick five and only two or one mm -hmm. will make it to be a coordinator or make it to be an AD mm -hmm. or something like that. So it's interesting to see, but it's definitely, um, it weeds them out pretty quick. I tell young PAs, keep your mouth shut, keep your eyes and ears open, use common sense. That'll get you about 90% of the way there. Always face camera. Don't have to, no stories you have are important at that moment. Right. Don't be on your phone. Don't, Don't answer your phone because you're already on a job. Yeah. If the next job wants you bad enough, they'll leave a message mm -hmm. and you call them back at lunch. Yeah. I played the cross. Growing up and the phrase you know, on defense, head on a swivel, always looking both ways, all, always being aware. And it's one of the few jobs where you really want to work yourself out of it quickly. You know, the good PAs aren't PAs for long. Yeah, but you have, you have to put the work in. I can tell you one thing. I noticed that the people that are still around and it's a really tight crew in South Florida are quiet for the most part. I mean, the, you know, all the camera guys are quiet. Most all the guys that are just here to stay are, are pretty much quiet. They do their job. They're not talking a lot about their personal life. 
They're certainly not talking about their dog or their girlfriend. And they're just there to focus on the job. All business. Yeah. And and speaking of uh, South Florida, Florida, you know, is its own little microcosm within, you know, film industry and beyond. And I want to keep talking about this topic. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. But first, we would like to thank our partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who has been providing filmmaking equipment, training and services to the film industry, both inside and outside the United States since 1968. M2 Films, who provides directing, writing and assistant director services. ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment, marketing, advertising, and commercial projects. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back. A couple months ago, I was at a a little roundtable event and Broward County Film Commissioner and recently elected president of Film Florida, uh, Sandy Leiderman, so congratulations to Sandy on that. Uh, she made an interesting point. She said that we need to move away from return, referring to it as the film industry and refer to it as the screen industry, given you know such a wide range of mediums and content channels that are out there. Uh, unlike if I was asking a second lieutenant, I will ask you, based on your experience, would you agree with that? And uh, what let's talk about the current state of you know, the quote screen content industry here in, in South Florida. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I, I, I admire Sandy. She's done a great job. She's been down here and a champion for film for years. She definitely is a soldier. Um, but I think that we are in the propaganda business, whether we're making movies or TV commercials or whatever we're doing. And American cinema, everybody's chasing. I did a job for a Russian company once. It was a coffee job. And the woman was trying to tell me how to do my job. And I turned to her and I said, let me ask you a quick question. It was early in the morning before I'd had my coffee. And I get a little snappy. And I said, do you know who Robert De Niro is? Yes. Do you know who Al Pacino is? Yes. I said, do you know who Johnny Depp is? Yes. I said, tell me your three most famous actors. And she tells me, Yuri something and somebody. I said, I've never heard of them. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the three guys I mentioned? Oh, of course. I go, that's because they're in American cinema. And you're here filming in America because you want that to wash over you so that that propaganda will go back to your state and you will sell lots of product. I said, so you need to leave me alone. And the thing I say about Sandy is that you don't want to change the perception. Again, we're in marketing and everybody was chasing film and everybody recognizes film for what it is. And although we're not using film anymore, sometimes we are, but very rarely, Everybody perceives it, and perception is nine-tenths of the law. So why try to change a strategy that has a huge marketing following and in mid-stride say, because it's now 2000s or 3000s or whatever era we're in, that now we should be calling it screen? I think that's a step back. You know, There's such mystique with filming. And people come from across the street to see The Rock or whoever is the du jour actor. And they love to stand around film sets and talk about why is that guy standing there the whole time? Who is that guy? That's the key grip. What does he do? How come he's not punching that guy producer in the face from Tropic Thunder? You know? So, I mean, it's always fun when you tell people. And I try not to. I go to parties or I go to outings and I rarely bring up what I do because all of a sudden people are around. And when you were younger and you would mention somebody's name, they go, oh, they're a name dropper. 
But if you're in with your peers, we're just talking about the jobs we're doing. And there's such, we're breathing such rare air here that I'm so grateful to still be in the game and say, hey, last week I was working with XYZ from NASCAR, or I was working with this billionaire who's promoting his new airline or whatever it is. You're seeing people that are extraordinary and they always have something, a little tidbit of knowledge is spinning off of these people if you're listening. In your nearly 40 years, you know, in Florida, in Hollywood, other other places, especially in Florida, you've seen the peaks and valleys that have happened here. It's been at the top. It's gone away. Some has come back. Some has gone away. What's your sense of the future? F- film is a clean industry. It covers so many borders financially. It is crazy that the people in the Senate and the representatives don't see that. What I was told a long time ago is that the amount of return is so large for the recipients, the producers and the people that are running the films that they don't want to admit how much money they're making because then they can't get these incentives. Okay, But at the same time, regardless of incentives or not, the amount of money that comes into the economy is ridiculous. And they shot this thing down in the Keys And the amount of residual people that travel down there when the show plays is immediately relative to the amount of people that come to the area. So anytime it plays and it was shot in a certain area, I think, and it just came to me recently, that there should be a new uh, website that just focuses on the locations that are in movies that people can go to and see and go, I love that movie. Where were those falls? Where was that cliff? Where did they shoot that? Because somebody could do that like IMDb now, and you would just have your own little game. I mean, wouldn't you love to have gone to where they shot, you know, Wild Hogs, where the girl was swimming and they were swimming in that nice old canyon? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you like to know where that was? Another thing I heard recently, there was an event and the the Miami Film Commissioner or or the mayor of Miami had said that last year the the film industry – there was a $200 million economic impact in Miami. A lot of people that I've spoken to have asked me where. Like they, a lot of people that I know that work in the industry, you know, they, they haven't seen that much. So do you think that's true? Here's my question. And I don't know enough about it, but I'd love to get deeper into it. I'd love to know how much for $1 of tourism dollar spent, how much ROI, return on investment we get. If we spend a dollar, do we get a dollar fifty because of everybody that comes down from Illinois or Wyoming or wherever they come to? What do we get back in the film business versus the the tourism business? It's hard to measure because, like I said, it crosses so many boundaries. But the residual effect, when I went down to the Keys and I talked to the bartender and said, hey, last week the Glades were playing, he said, yeah, we got a 30% increase. Walk through the door. That's something that almost can't be measured. So the people that are going, where is it coming? It's coming from all over. It's that secondary and third order of effect that they don't think about. They're so short-sighted that realize, you know, the jobs, people have jobs, are able to have spending money to put into the economy, plus the people that are coming down temporarily. In in the 1950s, they shot Key Largo with Humphrey Bogart down in the Keys. Mm -hmm. I still go to that bar and have a drink and stand there. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the film business. And I still ride down there on my bike and say, hey, man, this is cool. 
And every time I see that show, I think I need to go down there. Do you think the studio that they want to build in Fort Lauderdale will help re-energize? As long as it doesn't get too much, you know, I've heard a whole mix of stuff. You don't want to get me started on that. But I heard that they all want to keep their own vendors on property and what have you. We just want the filming experience to be pure. It needs to be as easy as possible for all people concerned. If they want to bring in their own scenery people or they want to bring in their own lighting people, why not? I mean, let them have their own relationships and have a pleasant time in the city. Because when they're off, the other 10 hours that they're off, they want to go enjoy Miami. They want to go to eat your restaurants. They want to tell people, you know, if you treat somebody right, they're going to tell three people. If you treat them wrong, they're going to tell 20 people. And and it's interesting. I, I don't want to say it's the uneducated one, but I look at it that because Florida doesn't have, you know, the statewide incentives. I mean, just look at Georgia. You know, we always talk about LA, New York, Georgia has become the hotbed. You got Miami, Broward County, Palm Beach County, a lot of them fighting for the same spend, like the same thing. A lot of them, so much crosses over. Why not have a regional film commission for that? Why not combine? I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think that when you, they just feel that it's ineffective because on a, on a bigger level, it's a bigger animal to move. And like Tampa, who has its own incentive now mm-hmm. and has attracted some projects because of that, that's a model to be to be reckoned right. with. You know, so Florida in general lost this. They had the opportunity to go the distance. Miami and the other thought, hey, man, they're going to come down here for the beaches. We have the beaches and that's it. And we're the game. And they found out that they weren't. So now they only come down here for a week. Mm-hmm. They shoot the whole film somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They're the other places enjoying all that. I mean, Georgia. You know, if you look, I looked at their entire uh, state bill, mm-hmm. how much money they're making every year. Film's a small part of it because Georgia really has some industry, right. but still six or $10 billion. You know, it's the people in your line of work, the production designers, the art directors that are able to make those other locations look like Florida. And that it's uh, it's heartbreaking when you see something, uh, you know, a show or movie that takes place in Florida. You go on IMDb and look where it was shot, and it's you know South Carolina or Sanibel Island or, or, or something out there. There's very few. It's a skeleton crew down here right now. It's very, you know, you'll get some A-listers, mm-hmm. but if you go two or three deep in any department, you're going to find yourself in trouble. So getting into that, talking about different locations, what are some of the, switching gears, what are some of the most complex productions you've ever worked on? Anything that really stands out? That's I mean, just last few was, you know, when you do period pieces, it is a real challenge to make things and all the custom work that goes into cutting trees in half to make the fort Lake James and making uh, period cannons and they're actually firing. All that stuff is, is huge amounts of money. Anytime you involve stunts and armoring, mm-hmm or gunfire, you you run into really big, big money. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason horror pictures do so well is, you know, it's at night and you got a couple kids screaming and there's some blood and suspense and that's the game. Right. But when you're blowing stuff up and you're chasing through the streets at a high, high volume, you can run into some problems. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I mean, all of them I did. Drop Zone, Fair Game, True Lies, you know, all that stuff is mm-hmm. important. When you're doing when you're doing uh, good films, big films, you never know if they're going to be good when you start them, right. you know. And you're just doing a small part of it. I mean, I'm not on set, you know. For a long time, I was just doing set dressing, and so the shooting crew, you'd come on after two months of set dressing, because you leave before the shooting crew gets there, and then you say, hey, 
you know, when you show up on the shooting day, they go, oh, first day? And you're, no, I've been here for two months, buddy. <laughs> so that's why I switched from set dressing into set decorating. Right. And then at a point I was in props, which was better. You know, as a prop guy, you're talking directly to the director. Right. When you're the decorator, you go through three or four people before you get the information. And it could be right. It could be wrong. But there's a, a big animal to move when you have to, when there's a rain day and all of a sudden you have to go on stage, you know, you're moving a lot of people to make that happen. So props was one of my favorites that, you know, when you're designing, you're one-on-one -on -one with the client, you're there much earlier than anybody ever's on. I get people that call me all the time and say, Hey, you've been on, you know, longer than anybody. I think you have most of the information. So it's neat to have that total picture. What's your process? So for example, you get hired for, let's say a film, X film. Does it start out, you get the script and do your breakdown? Do you get break? Like, how does it go from day one to, you know, shooting day? It depends on where you are and how the script came about. Whether you read the book and then you read the screenplay, or if you read the screen, you have to read the screenplay so at least you know what's going on. Then you have a conversation with the director and you talk about what his ideas are and what he wants to highlight. I try not to, and in, commer in commercials, when I do commercials, I try not to have anybody talk to me about the commercial until it's game on, mm -hmm. because my mind starts racing. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do all this. I always have a pen and piece, piece of paper with me constantly. I have one with me now, and I write it all down as fast as possible. And then sometimes I can't read my writing because I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. But I try not to get anybody to contaminate the idea before it's time to go. But once once it's time to go, man, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I try to isolate what we want. I try to start drawing cells and visualize what we're doing. It's constant changing. It's better when you're doing it now in computer because in 3D you can change it more quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you're not, when you're doing flat drawing, they, they don't want the perspective. You want to be higher. You want to be more to the left. Mm -hmm. You want to see less, more in this and that. So when you do it on computer, you can kind of rip through that and it's better. I take a lot of notes too. Sometimes I write too fast. I go back and look at it and I have horrible handwriting. I'm looking at it like, what the hell did I write? Try to figure that out. Music videos to me are, are, are a bit of a different animal, mainly because they're not actually singing and performing when they're shooting the video. Does that ever factor into the production design and the set? Do you have to take that, those type of things into consideration? I don't think so. I think that you have a lot more freedom on music videos, uh, but it is a lot more chaotic. Uh, there are some career music video uh, directors um, that are amazing. Gil Green's one of them that's down here. Uh, but you, it's normally, I wouldn't say entry-level position, but it's just guys that are either so creative, they don't fit into the commercial world, they're not big enough to get movies yet, but they're doing these music videos and it is tough to wrangle them. But it's neat. The energy is is neat. It's it's a younger energy. Um, they've dialed back a lot financially on those, unfortunately. Um, some of the big, the Beyonces and the JLos still have the big money, but most of them, it's a challenge. I was surprised when I moved down here to find out music videos are still a thing. I mean, I, I remember when MTV launched and back when they actually played music videos and when it was explained to me that you know, YouTube and extras like music videos are still significantly used as, as marketing and promotion tools, but also music videos and commercials really make up the bulk of the work down yeah. here for, yeah. for now. Stills and the people that live here, you know, the Serena Williams and the Tigers and all those people bring a lot of that to our, our business. And if they leave, 
you know, LeBron James left and with him left, you know, four or five commercials a month easily on my plate. So uh, people are like, are you sad to see him go? go yeah. You know, it, it killed me. I did his first commercial that he got here and I did his last, which I believe was McDonald's. So, but all that stuff is, you know, I did, um, talking about music videos again, I did, uh, and it's neat. But the stuff that's above your pay grade that you don't know about, we did a Justin Bieber video, and I put a lot of effort into it. And the payoff for me was Bieber came to the set. He sat down next to the director. I was within earshot. He looked over at him and he said, man, it's a great club. He goes, this has been here, right? And the director goes, no, we built this for you in three days. He was blown away. I wish I had it on tape. Mm. So, but that was the payoff for me. Right. And I turned around and went and told all my crew, we felt great. Somehow that video got leaked and it never was released. They get the, the record company got upset about it. It was about Havana. Uh, it was a beautiful, we made some beautiful stuff, Havana clubs and stuff. And they, they canned the whole project. That's my dream place I want to visit as soon as it opens back up for Americans one day. You mentioned you built that set. It's kind of a tough question, I know. What do you prefer? Do you prefer building like a set from scratch or say working, you know, within an existing structure and just modifying it, adding your own, adding your specific touch to it to meet the film? It's always different, but it's always about uh, time and funding and managing expectations. It's a huge part of my job these days. And so I call it the Twitter effect or the Amazon effect. A lot of these people think that on Monday, you're going to be able to turn out physical things by Tuesday or Wednesday. And I have to come in and say, guys, we either A, didn't start this project in time, or B, we don't have enough funding for this particular project. At You can't say no. So it takes you 10 years to, you have to erase the word no for 10 years. After 10 years, you can bring it back into your vocabulary, but it always has to be with an alternative. We can't do that, but we can probably do this. Will this work? And so the director, uh, unlike people think, oh, this is his vision and this is what he's going to get. He's constantly compromising mm -hmm. to try to still stay within the vision, but also appease other people. So it is a it's a huge collaboration. I titled this episode Illusions of Phenomenon, which I took off your website. What does that mean? It is you are trying to bring as real uh, a thing to as, as real an environment as you can to the circumstance for a very short period of time. I take pictures. I have a pretty detailed website at myname.com under current projects. It shows what I do by the week, who I work for. I don't release it until it's already come on broad broadcast, but everything in there shows the before, the after, my drawing, which usually goes through the strainer of physical uh, time and finances, mm -hmm. and then you see the, the actual. And then some of them have motion in there. So it's, it's neat. But I keep copious uh, because it's so fantastical. The life I have is so great mm -hmm. that I take pictures of everything and then I dump it down of other people, other technicians that are doing their job. And they can go see themselves. There's 800 packages on there now. But by next summer, there'll be 850 packages. Mm -hmm. So it's neat. It's really the, uh, you know, we always talk about, you know, the story. You know, it all starts with the story. And story, you know, is one dimensional. You know, I think character's two-dimensional, but it's really everything you do that you're talking about that adds that third dimension that really makes things come to life. I, I've mentioned in joking lots of uh, mistakes and find out. I'm like, you know what? From now on, I'm making black and white films. 
that are silent inside. So I don't have to worry about color grading. Don't have to worry about airplanes flying overhead. And, uh, you know, don't have, don't have to worry about the weather. But it would be boring. It would just be a one-dimensional black and white yeah. film. I mean, talking about production designers again and talking about the temporary environment, when you build a set, you're also in charge of, of the camera, where the camera's going to go. We make little troughs for lighting. So we take that department in, into account. We try to make blinds for, for sound. We try to make sure that um, the, you, you'll tell the DP, listen, the camera would be best if it's right here. And then he'll try to move it and go, wait a minute, I'm seeing behind that and there's nothing back there. Yeah, I told you the camera should go right here. And it's so temporary. That's why we take a bunch of pictures because we will take one day to set it up. We will have pre-built it somewhere for three weeks. Bring it in in a day, set it up. They'll shoot it for one day, usually 10 to 12 hours. And then within two hours, it goes back in the truck and it is gone. There's no other record other than that celluloid. And I was going to say, so to those independent filmmakers, young filmmakers, paperwork is extremely important. Drawings or pictures, settings, uh, overhead diagrams, your camera report, your sound report, your script supervisor's report, because you, you're always going to need it. You're always going to need to refer back to those things. Um, just like a crime scene that they do with police work. Take pictures of everything. you got to take pictures of everything. Great. We're going to take one more break, and we'll be right back to conclude this episode. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating. Then you can head over to our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash shop where you can purchase cinema pathway gear including t-shirts hoodies stickers and more also be sure to follow us on instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with Jerry Blum. Talked about your years in the industry, all the commercials, music videos, films you've worked on. Is there one that really stands out as just the most fun? I mean, obviously, it's always a stressful thing, but is there one that was just enjoyable, pleasure to be on? You know, I would say that the big ones are so much red tape to deal with, that the little ones, the $20 million small movies that you're not doing for the paycheck, you're really doing for the fun. And this one um, that I did with Kevin Bacon was pretty amazing. It had Kelly Preston. It had John Goodman. It was really a good movie. It was called Death Sentence. Um, I wouldn't say it was probably a moneymaker, but it definitely, Kevin Bacon is amazing at his craft. Kelly Preston, what a joy. And so what a good bunch. We really had a lot of fun. I had an intern on that and she turned around and has gone on to do big films. And I said to her, that was her first film, and I said, this is a good film. And she didn't know. It's like smoking cigarettes. You don't know the difference between cigarettes when you first smoke them until you smoked them for a while. Then you go, that's a menthol. That's not a good cigarette. So she had to go on to do 10 films, calls me five years later, and said, that was probably the best film. You were right. It was a family environment. It was amazing to watch people work. It had... um, the director was was pretty new, James Wan, at it. He had bought the the rights from, I believe, the guy who wrote Death Wish with Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. He bought that that for a penance, and it was one of his first real. He had done Saw. He was in the middle of I think Saw two maybe, mm-hmm. and he was just on the way to to re- lead an extraordinary mm-hmm. career. 
Um, he also did Fast and Furious now, but Kevin was just a machine. He would get input from three or four departments, the DP, the script girl, the lighting guy, and he they would say, hey, on the next one, you need to read it this way. You need to stand here. You need to do this. And he would right away implement all that. I've read that John Goodman is also just like amazing off camera too. All of them were great. World-class, really good at it. And so I was I was gifted to get that and do that job. It was shot in South Carolina. We were at a real insane asylum. I think it's called the Bull or it's on Bull Street. It was from it was shut down in like the 1960s. It had started somewhere around the 17 mid 1750s. It had uh, Civil War vets in it. It had all kinds of people. The walls were screaming to us. Mm. I'm not a spiritual guy, but we were there many a night, and I heard a lot of stuff. It was scary. I, I have an insane asylum story, but I'll save that for off the record. It involves me booking a vacation in the wrong state and an insane asylum. So what what are some of the current projects that you're working on? Uh, I'm focusing mainly on commercials. I thought about it the other day that there's going to be very few people in the future that'll probably be able to do a 40-year career that primarily was on commercials. I mean, I've, I've made a real career out of it. I'm doing some stuff for Hulu. I'm doing some stuff for ESPN. I'm doing some stuff for Sling and Dish. I mean, it goes on and on. The projects, I forget them after about a week or so. I, I just can't remember. You mentioned you don't work with LeBron when he's here, Tiger Woods. I, I moved down here from Austin, D.C. I grew up in New York. I spent time in New England. Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, huge sports towns, huge sport. Miami, it's really not like, you know, the Heat got into the playoffs, all that. But it seems there's so many personalities and so much that can be done with the sports world down here that they just don't take advantage of it. Miami's competing with the environment. The water is captivating. Uh, the, the weather in the winter is just delicious. It's just hard to compete with that, that people only go to the games when they're almost three games out of winning the whole thing. Like the Panthers. Nobody paid attention to the Panthers until they were in the, the finals. So unless you have something that's really captivating, I think that marketing is moving because Instagram and what have you, it's moving to more 15-second commercials, six-second commercials, just enough to captivate the viewer before they go, I don't want to see this anymore. I think that Instagram is really having an effect on us as a species across a broad spectrum visually and mentally. Um, I don't think it's good for kids. I don't think computers are great for kids in that regard, YouTube and all that. Um, I'm in the medium. I love the medium. I think that in the future, we need to focus more on, on longer format and let the kids have their, their toys and stuff later in life when they can focus. Speaking of the future, what does your future look like? I have a pretty big prop shop right now that does a lot of fabrication and stuff. That's probably going to be my exit strategy. So I'm not on set 15, 16 hours a day. Uh, I walk between 18 and 30,000 steps a day. People say to me, hey man, you want to go to the gym? And I'm, I'm at the gym mm -hmm. every day. Uh, when you see me on set, I can be a maniac. I mean, I run between five and 60 guys, mm -hmm. depending on the project. And it, it, it's game on. Mm -hmm. Every morning when I wake up, you know, I'm anxious to get to work, uh, depending on where it is. And, uh, and I want to go. So, you know, so much knowledge. You've talked a couple of times about all the notes you have, all the drawings, all the pictures. Going to write a book? I, I would read it. I, I, I would you, actually read a book of, love, all your, I would of, love, of all your work. I would love to do a book of the 10 best prop masters in L.A. Because each one of them probably have five stories 
about Jack Nicholson or Meryl Streep or somebody that's just got new great Gene Hackman stories. But if you were to get some crew members, I mean, the actors open up to them. Mm -hmm. They're very comfortable around us. We try to be invisible. We don't want to, you know, impact their performances. They're also giving to the project. So we try to all dress in black, you know, be as quiet as possible. It, it's neat the things we get to hear and see. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess the, the, what I'm saying the most is if you're a really good listener and have attention to detail, you might be good for this job. With the prop shop, what are some of the things that you build? I mean, I've looked at that, but let our listeners know, you know, you do whole huge set pieces, you do small props, just. So we have a prop shop that I feel is like three businesses in one. It's, it's got prop rentals, which is set up like a Home Depot with, with three tiers of shelves. And it's about 30,000 square feet of props. Um, it has a big 3D machine that carves foam into anything you want. Alice in Wonderland props, huge Egyptian statues, all kinds of reliefs, hieroglyphics and things like that is really neat. But we can do, um, and then we have full carpentry and set building in the back. So it's these three things that come together that are all facets of art department. So it's, it's neat. We have greens, we have our own trucks, we have scaffolding, we have stages, we have truss. When commercials you've worked on come on TV or you see them, do you still get a little you know, awestruck or look at it with, I guess, love that you put into it? Or has it gotten to the point where you're like, eh, another one of mine? No, I, I usually, depends on the commercials. One came up the other day with Tiger Woods where he's hitting the ball off a lily pad. He walks on water and somebody said, hey, this is one of the greatest commercials ever. And I looked at it and I went, wait a minute, I did that commercial. So we, we designed the plexiglass. We, you know, got with the agency and the director who was Joe Pickett at the time, a very uh, fussy guy. Um, and we pulled it off. It was pretty great. So um, that's neat. But then I look at some of these modern ones with a lot of twists and turns. I know the budgets are challenging, and I think, thank God I wasn't on that one. It's hard to tell a story in 30 seconds in a commercial. I mean, I know, me particular, the longer the form, the more I can get, get a story up. But, you know, the commercials, and you alluded to it a little bit, the Twitter, TikTok, Instagram generation, the attention spans have low that it's, you know, well, they also, seconds. these days they bring a unit, B unit, they bring a still unit, they bring a social unit. So all that's going on. So all of a sudden your attention is fractured. You're not only on the primary set, but you're paying attention to what the secondary is. You got to put a prop guy over there. You got to put the decorator over there. You have a lot of last minute requests. So you have to have a, a, a long burn. Your patience level has to be, and mine's not great. But I'm getting better. Do you have a dream project? Something you would love you would love to build or work on or be a part of? I thought I had a shot at doing something with Yellowstone. And one of my guys had an in. And, at the, and you never know the name of the project because in the beginning, you really don't know. And at the last minute, it kind of went away. But um, I wouldn't mind doing something Western. Would be neat, you know. I, I think that you don't realize that when John Wayne comes riding up on his horse and he stops suddenly, all that dust that goes by him dusts the camera guy and everybody else in their way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, some, something neat outdoors in a big vista I think would be cool. Nothing big and cinematic, 70 millimeter? 60, 70, whatever 60, it takes. Exactly. 60, exactly. 220, 221, whatever it takes. Uh, as a veteran, I nitpick so much when I watch movies. I look for every little detail. Do you I do don't. that? Especially I don't. I try to release I, because... No. 
I, I don't get to watch a lot of TV and I don't get to let, so I try to just let it go and wash over me. And if I come away at the end and I go, yeah, that was a pretty good piece, mm-hmm. then it was believable for me. I'm not that critical anymore. I used to be when I was younger, but these days I just try to let it go. Right. Yeah, we still get, but you know, my wife's also veteran. Speaking of propaganda, she's I was actually a public affairs officer and still does public affairs. So I, I tease her all the time. She's in the propaganda business and, you know, uniforms are the things that get that get us uniforms haircuts and using ranks well being authentic the ranks are being authentic yeah yeah so I'll, that you're immersed in it i'll let you know a little secret i still don't know all the air force enlisted ranks right it's like right crazy i think that i think that it's important i think that uh you know if you're doing a project and you need some help you can come down to movie prop rentals and mm. we'll try to help you yeah. you can look at the stuff online exactly. there's a website there now there's like no and, excuse for it yeah Someone's and so a lot of stuff we do remotely the people don't even come there anymore most of it's online and we just fill out orders and send it for stuff that that they have student projects or whatever they have for the bigger stuff you know we go on scouts mm-hmm. there's a lot of time and effort to go into it and there's a lot of qualified people behind it um and to, to be one of the few, it's like being a Marine. The few, the proud, the Marines, the, Marine. the, cry, the crayon eaters. <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self if you could? I probably would have got in the union on, on, on Las Mohicans. They offered me a, four, seven, a 44 card in L.A. And I didn't get it because it would have been a week and a half salary. And I just was, you know, we were doing 85-hour weeks. I didn't feel like giving it away. I think as we get older, we pile up regrets. And that's probably one of them. But you know, other than that, no, I think I've been blessed with, with some good advice and I've, I've been on the, uh, listen, we're working on a razor's edge mm-hmm. and we're definitely working on a razor's edge in South Florida. Mm-hmm. So to be in the game this long, it is rare. And I know it's rare because there's only three or four other art directors in Miami that are still doing what we're doing and all the rest of the guys have fallen off. Well, and, and I know a couple who have skipped, skipped town. Yeah. They've gone to Atlanta, they've gone to LA just because- it's because that, that, that's where the work is. And you you brought up the point earlier. It's almost like find a balance between chasing to bring the work back or leveraging, maximizing what we have here available. We You get a big bang for your buck in South Florida. I mean, the rates are cheaper. You know, the location fees are cheaper. The greens, picture cars, catering, all that stuff's cheaper. So your money goes a lot farther. You know, you wouldn't be bad to, to come down here. And I noticed that the people that come down here come back two or three times in a row, which tells me that we got a good product and we have some good crews. They usually bring in their their chiefs, but there's good. it's good all the way around. If they come down here and I get used in a, in a key capacity, they go, wow, where where you been? I've, I've been here the whole time. You know, I choose to live here. I could live in L.A. And I could work in L.A. And I've been to L.A. and they've kept me there for months on end. And I go, look, man, I got little kids. I got to go home. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is I choose to live here because it's a great place. The air is clean. After work, there's a life here. Um, It's nice. The food is fantastic. The people are nice. Miami's become a huge. I'm glad Miami's become a huge The Cuban coffee makes the people a little nuts. Driving, I admit, is a little crazy. I get that. But outside of it, the water's great. You know, the environments are pretty. It's beautiful. I learned the hard way on one of my first sets, not having cappuccino in the middle of the afternoon. I, I almost had a mutiny on that. So it, it's, you know, little things you learn down here. Uh, if a young, you know, say 18, 19 year old working in their shop says, I, I want to get to where you are one day. You know, we've touched on it here and there, but what, what are some pieces of advice you'd give them? Man, it's, it, you just got to keep your head down 
work as much as possible. Do every job like it's your last. Meet your budget requirements. Don't blow your budget. Um, try to satisfy everybody involved and listen. You know, like I said, the the set the requirements to be an art director are an eye, have an eye, a creative eye, um, be able to manipulate people to your way of thinking so that it, it uh, be, becomes something you can do in the time allotted, mm -hmm. but at the same time, motivate people so that they want to work with you um, and give them constructive criticism, you know, but at the same time, know what one man can do. Uh, don't uh, elude yourself and say, Hey, this guy can do these 20 pickups because he can't. So you got to be learning the whole time. I'm still learning. I learned something the other day. I already forgot it, but I, that day I said, Hey, I learned something new today. So you, you always have to be a student of the game and you have to try to get better. You know, am I better than I was 10 years ago? Absolutely. As a person and as an administrator, and, you know, and as a technician, um, I think I think everybody that helps me, you know, I think all the grips, I think everybody when I leave, because without them, you know, you're going to forget something. The chances of you rolling up and having all hundred items that day. You've you've given back so much that I've heard, you know, from mentoring, educating, talking, giving people chances. Are there any organizations or causes, you know, that you're a part of that you want to talk about and maybe give a shout out to? I mean, I wouldn't say I've given back. I've definitely given people a hard time. It's all learning. <laughs> I've tried to uh, be as fair as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're dealing with people, sometimes they don't see it that way. It's a real dance at this level. You are dealing with personalities mm -hmm. and you're just trying to navigate the personalities. And so, you know, do I have a favorite organization? Probably not, but it'd probably be Big Brother maybe or, or something where you're dealing with kids and you're bringing them along. I mean, when you show, when you bring the kids to set, you see the wonderment in their eyes. And then years later, they say, hey, you brought me on that project. And I will have long forgot it. And it's something they'll never forget. So I definitely try to do something special for kids. Yeah, giving kids something they've never seen before is definitely something special. And I do want to tell you, anyone that has the experience that you have and comes back and passes it on, it is giving back. And I think everybody here appreciates it. We all appreciate it and hope you continue to do that. You're, you're definitely a uh, pillar of the South Florida film community. And you know, excited to see what's coming. This has been great. I've learned a lot about the craft, learned a lot about what you do, learned you know, even more behind the scenes than I've seen. Uh, uh, pun intended. I would love to have you back on the show sure. in the future. And again, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Cinema Pathway Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway Podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, with associate producer Victor Ferreira. The executive producer is Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website, www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you could send any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Remember to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and visit our online store at www 
www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash store to get your Cinema Pathway gear and follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We hope you will join us for our next episode where we will continue bringing on special guests to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway Podcast. Lights out.